Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. It's a big day here for us at the Vaccine Challenge because today we're in conversation with Carlo Di Natale Stefani of Operation Warp Speed. Operation Warp Speed, or OWS, is a public-private partnership initiated by the U.S. government to facilitate and accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines. The reason Carlo was chosen for this very important role is because of his illustrious background in pharma. Carlo was previously the president and CEO of Teva Pharmaceuticals for seven years, prior to which he spent seven years each at Bristol-Myers-Squibb and Sanofi. I'm going to be asking some really important questions around how OWS works with the FDA and CDC, what the actual numbers of vaccines in the pipeline waiting to be authorized are, why the embargo on vaccine raw materials to the rest of the world, the basic supply chain of vaccine development, and whether there will be permanent changes in the world of drug discovery and approval timelines given the speed at which these vaccines have come to market. That's a lot to uncover, so let's jump right in. Hi there, Carlo. It's so lovely to be chatting with you today. I'd love first an introduction to yourself, your background, as well as your role at Operation Warp Speed. Sure, Priyanka. And it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk, right? I'm a pharmaceutical executive. I've been in pharmaceutical manufacturing for over 35 years. I retired at the beginning of 2020 from Teva Pharmaceuticals, where I've been the global head of operations for the previous eight years. Before that, I was with Bristol Myers Squibb as their head of operations for another eight years. All of my career has been in pharmaceutical manufacturing management, supply chain management. I've managed quality. I've managed large global businesses and some of the largest supply chains in the world. And after I retired, unfortunately, as you know, uh, COVID-19 hit the world and I was requested to come and help set up the operations to deliver vaccines and therapeutics to the uh, U.S. That operation has been known as Operation Sword Speed. Today is called Federal COVID Response. was set up with the intent to accelerate the delivery of vaccine and therapeutics and supply the whole U.S. population. Wow, that's absolutely amazing, especially given that you come from a pharma background. There's a lot of questions that I have about the manufacturing of the vaccine and all of that stuff. But before getting into that, can you maybe shed some light on the scope of Operation Warp Speed itself? There's so many other health authorities like the FDA, the CDC. What are the roles of each of these bodies and what exactly is Operation Warp Speed specifically responsible to deliver? Yeah, the Operation Warp Speed was set up as a project. At the beginning, the model uh, that the U.S. government had, the administration had, was sort of like the Manhattan Project, right? A special task force set up within the U.S. government, bringing different kind of experiences and expertise to deliver a well-defined outcome. And the objective, which was set for the operations, which was quite ambitious, I have to say, was to deliver 100 million doses of a vaccine by the end of year 2020 and 300 million doses by the end of Q1-21. While I have to admit that 
we didn't fully accomplish that objective, we came really, really close to it. The operations was set up as an integrated effort between the Health and Human Service Department, so sort of the Ministry of Health for the U.S., and the Department of Defense, who brought uh, their logistics expertise. And then there were a number of experienced pharmaceutical executives like myself or the global head of the operations was Piedmont Slawit, who brought, we all brought our pharma experience to the operation. The FDA, which is the regulator tasked with approving the vaccines and the therapeutics, was not included in the operations by design. The government wanted to the FDA to retain its full independence in order to really judge the outcome in an objective way and apply the standard of risk benefits to the outcome that we would provide. Got it. That's very interesting. The demarcation makes perfect sense. Can you maybe shed some light on the numbers? I know you obviously mentioned what the goals were, but can you maybe talk about how many vaccines have been approved at this stage? How many are in the pipeline awaiting approval? How many have been manufactured? How many citizens in the U.S. actually have been vaccinated? And what the goals are in the next few weeks and months? The initial objective was deliver 100 million doses by the end of year 2020 and 300 million by the end of Q1 21. When we started the operations, that was in May 2020, the first decisions, significant decisions we had to make was which vaccine do we select to support? Because while we had huge resources, financial resources to support these programs, we still were somehow limited on the number of products we could support. And we had about 60 candidates which were under development in the world at that point in time. So the first task was to decide which one do we support, which one do we put our energy behind to accelerate and accelerate the development and accelerate the manufacturing. The driver of the decision obviously was a likelihood of success mm-hmm. and minimization of risks. Because of this, we selected three key platforms, the messenger RNA, the viral vector, and the spike protein. So out of these three platforms, for each of these three platforms, we selected two or three candidates, which were the most promising based on the preliminary data available and the stage of the development program. And so we ended up selecting seven programs within these three platforms for the vaccines. A similar approach was taken for the therapeutics. We selected monoclonal antibodies, small molecules, um, antivirals, and a, a couple of other interesting technologies like polyclonal antibodies from transgenic cows. So all of this was the setup. We then started supporting and accelerating the clinical development and the manufacturing setup. To make a long story short, as I said, we didn't fully accomplish the, I call it, um, uh, sort of ambitious target or sort of visionary finish line that we had Mm -hmm. set for ourselves, but we came very close. We Mm -hmm. had about 30 million doses by the end of the year, 
and we achieved 230 million doses by the end of Q1. Wow. A significant number of people have received first and second doses by today. We have distributed um, over 280 million doses as of today. So I think that's quite more than I thought possible. Wow, that is truly amazing. You obviously mentioned that there are there were six or seven that were considered the number of vaccines in the pipeline. Are there any more that you think would get approval in, in the next few weeks or months? So here in the US right now, we have three vaccines which have been approved. The first one was the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, followed within days by the Moderna vaccines. This both vaccines were from the same platform, the messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. We thought this would have been the fastest platform to deliver a result. We, of course, didn't know whether the results would have been positive or negative, but we knew that the, the path to the development would have been the fastest. The third vaccine that has received an emergency use authorization has been the Janssen vaccine, which is a viral vector vaccine. We have three more which are still under development, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is another viral vector, mm -hmm. and then the Novavax and Sanofi vaccines, which are both protein, spike protein. We knew that the spike protein would take longer than the other. So sort of the sequence was as expected. What has been surprising um, that of the seven programs we selected, only one of them has been discontinued and not for failure to deliver, but because of the length of the development timelines, the company Merck decided to discontinue. Six out of the seven have all delivered positive efficacy results so far in the trials which have been done and very good safety data up to this point. So this has been better than anybody thought possible. That's amazing. The ones that have been approved at this stage in the U.S. all happen to be produced locally. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. That was one of the targets we set for ourselves to manufacture within the U.S. the U.S. supply. And the reason for this, which was quite debated, quite heated, heated way, I have to say, because, uh, you know, pharmaceutical supply chains are global. Mm -hmm. And so try to develop a regional supply chain is a challenge in itself. Do that during a pandemic mm -hmm. is an even bigger challenge. And so uh, several of us questioned the need for that. But, you know, from the other side, having local manufacturing allows you to support and control the progress a lot better. And it's a trade-off. And so finally, we decided, yes, let's manufacture locally. Let's support it locally. The, the decision to do that has allowed us to follow very closely the manufacturing setup, identify the issues in advance, and work in a more proactive way with the sponsors, the manufacturers, and deliver, frankly, on the target we set for ourselves. Right. 
that makes sense. And and so even in the near future, there's no expectation that any of these other vaccines that haven't yet been approved, that, that will be approved, will be imported. They still they are still expected to be produced locally. Yeah, there are, again, the three vaccines which haven't been approved yet are the AstraZeneca, Novavax, and Sanofi. We expect the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine in the very near future. I would say within weeks, more than months, followed by the Novavax and last, the Sanofi one. They are all manufactured locally, even if, again, all of these companies are global companies and they're supporting other manufacturing efforts in several other countries. For instance, both AstraZeneca, Janssen and Novavax have partnerships in India for manufacturing in India, have partnership in Europe for manufacturing in Europe. Right, that makes sense. Speaking of vaccines in India, just before getting on to this call, I was reading a tweet by uh, the CEO of Serum Institute that I believe develops the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it said that, I think he said something about an embargo on imports for raw materials for vaccines and was urging uh, for that to be released. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, listen, uh, the pandemic is global right, knows no borders. And I think the big concern is if every country tries to block their borders and prevent export of vaccines or opponents globally, ultimately we will all be losers because I cannot see a scenario where one country is safe and the rest of the world still has the pandemic. Right. This is a problem that we need to address globally. Now, having said that, I can certainly understand the challenge of the governments that are tasked with protecting their citizens first. And this is a matter of prioritization rather than whether it should be addressed globally or not. And I am always of the opinion that collaborations is better than fight in this situation. As I said before, supply chains are global. There is no way that a single country can resolve this problem 100% alone. And so ultimately, I'm sure that reason will prevail. And while there are certainly tensions going on, ultimately, the governments will have to collaborate. And I've seen signs that um, this is actually happening besides the formal public postures that governments have to take in some situations. Mm -hmm. Got it. Makes sense. And I mean, I guess in in these situations, which specific health authority makes the decision that, you know, obviously eventually publicly is announced by the governments, but is there a specific group uh, or health authority that makes this decision? I, I guess that depends on a country by country basis, right? Here in the US, it's certainly the White House that would make such a decision with under advice from the Health and Human Services and the CDC, which is a part of the Health and Human Services. But every country has a different structure for government, so around the world this may change. 
Gotcha. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about planning and execution. One of the things that's obviously interesting about the COVID-19 vaccine is that for most of the manufacturers, there's requirements of two doses. I'm curious, what kind of special planning needs to go in for successful execution of this requirement, right? Is a jab considered complete once both doses are given? How do you count individuals that don't come back for a second jab? As you know, at the beginning, we were in a supply-constrained situation. We had a large pent-up demand of people who wanted the vaccine, and we were limited on the number of doses available. So we set up sort of a sales and operations planning process, creating a forecast of availability, managing the interval between the doses, which, as you know, is different. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has a three-weeks interval between first and second doses. Moderna has four weeks and Janssen is a single dose. And so through a system, an IT system set up by the Department of Defense called Tiberius, we would plan the distributions based on the availability, keeping track of every location in the US where the vaccine was being shipped and setting aside the second doses of the same vaccine for that location. The CDC guideline was that we would go for an homologous second dose, and that means we could not mix and match the different vaccines to the same individual, Mm -hmm. and we would respect the interval as defined in the clinical study. So with those constraints, we plan the distribution. Right now, we have about 35,000 administration points, or better say, shipping points where we ship each one of these may actually support more than one administration point. And for each one of them, we know exactly how many doses they have received, how many doses they have administered for first dose that are pending a second dose and when the second dose are due so that we can plan the shipment of the second doses. In total, so far, we have shipped about 240 million doses. And of this, to, as of today, we have about 70 million people who have had a complete cycle, first and second doses, and over 130 million who have had at least one dose. Wow, that's amazing. And so is Iberius a centralized system that has data of everyone in the US that has had shot? So in the U.S., there is no centralized system with individual data. And that has been a policy decision, right? So we know the doses, we know the locations, we have no data, no personally identifiable information of the people who have Mm -hmm. done this. And that's a decision that the U.S. has made a long time ago. This information is collected at the state level, not at the federal level. And so every state has different systems. Tiberius is the logistics system set up by the Department of Defense to manage all the orders and logistics and distribution of the vaccines across the U.S., and what are called the different jurisdictions, which, by the way, include all the U.S. embassies around the world. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a whole different challenge, uh, which I guess needs 
its own separate time to chat about. But wow, that's really interesting. Now, the speed at which uh, the COVID-19 vaccines have been researched, developed, and even approved really has been the fastest in history. Can you maybe talk about any interesting partnerships or collaborations that have developed in order to make this possible? Yes, of course. And, you know, speed is a two-edged word. People get concerned that by trying to accelerate you may cut corners and then they get concerned about the quality of the outcome. And we took many, many uh, precautions to message this the right way because what we have been doing, it's not of course cutting corners, has been taking financial risks to reduce lead times. But we absolutely did not cut any corner regarding the safety, the efficacy, the compliance, the quality aspects for the vaccines. So in order to reduce the development time, the first thing we looked at is what can we do in parallel? And so we started manufacturing the vaccines well before knowing whether the vaccine would have been safe and effective. And that means that if the clinical study delivered a negative result, we would have wasted a significant amount of money manufacturing millions and millions of doses without knowing yet whether those doses would have been effective or not. Of course, the resources of the U.S. government allowed us to take that financial risk. A private company would never have done it. And that's how we could manage, for instance, to reduce certain times versus the development done by uh, pharmaceutical companies. Similarly, we partnered the NIH, the National Institute of Health um, hospital chains, the veteran administration hospital chains, all the resources to support clinical studies of the US government. And we set up a mobile network of clinical study centers to follow where the pandemic was in the country. Mm-hmm. Again, this was a very capital intensive way of doing it, but this allowed us to recruit patients exactly where the hotspots of the pandemics were. And these hotspots were moving over time across the country. This would have been impossible for a pharma company to do but the resources of the U.S. government made it possible and reduced the time for the clinical studies significantly. That's amazing. I would never have imagined that such kind of financial risk obviously goes in, uh, you know, into something like this. But given it's a global pandemic, that obviously helps explain how vaccines can be ready that quickly um, as soon as approval is done. Can you maybe walk us through the basic supply chain involved in manufacturing a vaccine itself? So say from active ingredient to when it gets to into the vials and storage boxes and out the factory floor, what does the basic operation and logistics of this look like? Yes, and of course, the basic operation changes depending on the platform of the vaccines. The messenger RNA is basically a synthetic vaccines. There are several chemical steps, a couple of biological steps to start with, where you start with plasmid, and then you do an in vitro transcription, and then you generate nanoparticles to encapsulate the mRNA, and then you freeze it, and then you formulate it into vials. There are a lot of materials involved, which are sourced globally, starting from the 
starting from the lipids that generate the nanoparticles to the plasmid that is produced by E. coli fermentation to several other components. So there is a very long upstream supply chain for the raw material. The drug substance that it's relatively short for a vaccine can all be performed within a week or two at most. And then you have the normal formulation where the vaccine is compounded, peeled, and the vials are inspected, labeled, and packaged. At the end of the manufacturing process, the vaccine is frozen. Most of these vaccines are not stable at normal refrigerated temperature. They have to be at minus 20, minus 40, all the way to minus 80 degrees C for the Pfizer vaccine. And so the supply chain involves significant amount of refrigerated storage space or freezer storage space. Pfizer has set up what they call a freezer farm with hundreds, almost a thousand freezers at minus 80 to store the material working process and the finished goods pending testing. The setup of this chain has requested several months of work and preparation. This is another example of public-private partnership. Uh, had not been possible to achieve that partnership, maybe we would still be building the plant as we speak instead of injecting vaccines in people's hearts. That's absolutely amazing. Were there enough refrigerators even available? Was that something that needed to be developed? Did we just in general have the capacity? Well, we built the capacity over time. Again, we started early. Remember, we decided to take the financial risks and build the infrastructure and build the capacity without knowing whether the vaccines would have been affected. So we purchased a very large amount of refrigerated space, freezers early in the project. By June, we were already placing orders based on an assumption that we would get to 300 million doses for each vaccine. And that's another thing that maybe people didn't realize. We supported six vaccines. We had the plan to deliver a mission to deliver 300 million doses. We build an infrastructure able to deliver 300 million doses of each one of these vaccines because we did not know which one would have been successful at the end. That's such an amazing feat. We, we've talked a lot about all the brilliant work that Warp Speed has done. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the challenges. What would you say are your top three challenges and how do you solve for it? So the number one challenge was, again, everybody in the world was trying to do the same. And so all materials and components were short. We, we really did not have enough material and components readily available to us. And because of that, we had to really roam the globe to find some of the materials we needed. Within the US, we certainly had the priority. So we could order manufacturer to deliver to the US government as a number one priority in their book of orders. Outside of the US, we certainly didn't have any power. And so we had really to scout the world to find all the material. That was the number one 
challenge. The number two challenge was people, of course. While we had some infrastructure, we had to build a lot more. Right. And, you know, building the plant is one part of the equations, but you need the people to run that plant. And there were many people with experience in manufacturing vaccines available to jump on this. And you know, we're talking about manufacturing, planning to manufacture a couple of billion doses mm -hmm. within a three to six month period. That yeah, wow. requires a huge amount of people. Yeah. And so that was the second challenge. And the third challenge, of course, was the science behind this. We decided, again, we would not cut any corner, of course. And so sometimes there are times that you cannot compress. Right. And so how do you build the plan in order to optimize overall without compromising on the science, on the data that you need to generate to ensure the regulator about the efficacy and the safety of the product. That was the third challenge, I would say. Wow, that's that's just incredible. You've obviously had your hands full for the last year, huh? And I, I mean, I guess something that obviously as someone that's sort of part of the industry and consumes a lot of news around whatever is happening in the vaccine space, how do you respond to whatever happened with the Janssen vaccine, for example, recently, right? The, the CDC obviously has asked to pause any inoculations until there's more information uh, that we know about the clots. How do you then support for the execution of this hold and ensure that vaccines that are already at like say primary care centers or in transit are not? So there was a huge coordination effort, right? We sent uh, messages and got confirmation of receipt to every administration point which had received the vaccines, right? So we made sure that all administration was posed that all storage of the vaccine was done in agreement with the necessary storage conditions. We would want to make sure that we are ready to resume as soon as we get the green light in a safe way for everybody involved. So all of this has happened within a 24 hours time frame. Again, thanks to the existence of a very powerful IT system, Tiberius, and the coordination with the Department of Defense resources, which have done an incredible job of setting up the logistics network. That's absolutely stunning. I'm going to ask you one final question because I know that you have very, very tangibly important things uh, to do. Do you think that there could be any permanent or lasting changes within drug discovery, development, or even approval timelines and market access as a result of what we've seen happen with this vaccine? I think so. I think the industry has learned a lot from what is possible when you really put up a collaborative setup. I think the regulator had learned a lot. The FDA has been able to redesign the review process and deliver a decision within, in some cases, two weeks from submission. And that's unheard of, right? So we have all learned new ways of working and that has changed, I believe, the industry forever. You know, it's a little bit like we've all learned to work remotely now because mm. that was the only option. A year ago, two years ago, if people had told me that we would all be working remotely through Zoom, Teams, 
I would have said you're joking, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I guess final question then. Personally for you, what is it that you miss from the pre-COVID world? What needs to happen for you to be able to say, hey, you know what, this is behind us? Yeah, listen, I, what I miss is really having time with friends and family without fear and constraints, right? Right now, we we still, we see friends and family, but much less than we used to. So the so the ability to have social interactions broadly, it's still not there yet. And that I miss a lot. And I hope what we're doing will help all of us to earn back some aspects of our life that I certainly miss significantly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me, Carlo. This is uh, incredible, uh, the amount of work that goes behind closed doors to make any of this possible and for our world to hopefully quickly heal. Really, really appreciate all of the work that you and everyone uh, over there at Warp Speed are doing. And again, thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me. Thank you, Priyanka, for the opportunity to share some of these experience. Thank you and stay safe. If you want to hear more from Carlo, he's speaking this year at the Disease Prevention and Control Summit, a two-day virtual event taking place on July 20th and 21st, focusing on some of the most important topics around COVID-19 space, including vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and health equity. I will also be moderating a panel on vaccine distribution, so make sure not to miss it. Links to register for free are in the podcast description for this episode. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contact us at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from The Vaccine Challenge.